want to welcome Kevin O'Donnell. Welcome to the Green Front. Thank you very much, Betsy. It's a pleasure to be here. We met uh, in Los Angeles at the reunion of the uh, Climate Project. That was last June. And you gave um, we experts on climate change um, a whole lot of new information. I was very impressed with what you talked about. And and let's just uh, tell our listeners what what we're referring to. First of all, start with what environmental impact do buildings have and uh, the traditional model, and then we'll talk about, you know, the alternative. Sure. There's a number of different things that uh, that, that buildings uh, or the ways in which the buildings uh, impact the environment. The way I sort of got engaged in this whole discussion um, had primarily to do with what impact buildings have on climate change. And as you mentioned, we're both um, members of the uh, Climate Project, um, Al Gore's organization. And I started with the slideshow, An Inconvenient Truth, started going out and presenting the show, but really felt like I needed to dig in a little bit deeper, do a little bit more of my own research, and do a little bit more research to see how climate change could connect to the things that I do, you know, in my daily life, uh, architecture and uh, the design that I do for my clients. One of the things I realized pretty early on in this sort of independent research that I was doing is that I found all sorts of statistics that showed that buildings were in fact one of the largest, if not the largest, emitters of CO2 into the atmosphere. Most people talk about you know, personal automobiles. There's, you'll see all sorts of things on, you know, throughout the media, television, magazine articles, commercials, all sorts of things about reducing use of automobiles, making more efficient vehicles, hybrids, electrics, um, hybrid plug-ins, all of those. And those are all good measures, but personal transportation in the United States only represents about 20% of the total amount of CO2 that is emitted. Buildings, on the other half, through commercial buildings, residential buildings, and industrial buildings are 48%, so nearly half of all emissions um, into the atmosphere come from our buildings. And I found that to be pretty shocking. Now, do buildings themselves just uh, automatically on their own spew CO2, or is it something about uh, what the human inhabitants are doing inside that structure? It's, it's two things. It's uh, Actually, I'm sorry, it's three things. One, clearly, is occupant behavior, the things that we're actually doing in our buildings, the, you know, computers that we run, the, you know, the dishwashers, the vacuums, the TVs, all of the things that consume electricity um, is, is one issue. The buildings themselves, in terms of the lighting, um, heating, ventilation, air conditioning, all of those different things, plus other types of equipment that might be in the building, those consume electricity. And then there's also a third, which is rarely talked about, which is what's called embodied energy, which is the amount of energy that is used to produce the materials that buildings are constructed from. Um, estimates range anywhere between 15, 18% of the total amount of electricity that buildings use in their lifetime comes from embodied energy. Um, wow. So what do we do first, kill all the buildings and start over? <laughs> well, we've got some interesting problems, uh, and there's sort of two ways to look at it. One is, is you've got a, 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 an incredible existing building stock um, that will, you know, be with us for quite some time. And I know then, you out there. <laughs> and then you have a lot of We're talking of about everything building. from residential homes to commercial structures to industrial structures when we talk about buildings, green buildings. Is that correct? Correct. Correct. Um, and what, uh, what you'll see is that, that sort of the strategies for those are different things that we can do for existing buildings. It's potentially different than what we might do for a brand new building. I actually was talking to somebody yesterday who said, that you know, we need to be careful as designers and anyone who's involved in the development of new buildings that decisions we make today 
have the potential to impact the lifespan of that building or may have impact on the environment over a long period of time, anywhere between 50 and 100 years, you know, the lifespan of, of any building. So poor decisions on the very front end could have lasting impact on the environment. Um, so we need to really take a look at both the existing building stock and things that we can do with those and new buildings and how they're designed and really kind of rethink our entire building development strategies. And that's a lot of what I work with uh, with my clients is kind of rethinking the way they they uh, they develop their buildings. And I should mention that Kevin directs a company called WD Ecologic where he champions cutting-edge green building designs that is based in Los Angeles. Uh, before we get to the solutions, Kevin, um, I did mention as examples residential uh, structures, commercial industry, but I forgot to mention office buildings, and aren't they a big part of the problem? Sure. Office buildings are part of, are, are considered part of commercial buildings. And yes, they are, but in fact, one of the, the, one of the building types that consumes more electricity than any other are retail buildings. Um, you know, I go to conferences all over the country. I do you know, maybe like 35 a year, and I sit through conferences, sessions, educational sessions. And people talk about it, and I think it's largely because there are more statistics available for office buildings than any other uh, building type, any other commercial building type. But retail buildings actually consume more electricity than, than others. Just to give you an example, some of the largest uh, retailers in the country, the top ten retailers in the U.S., names that we all know, Walmart, Home Depot, Kroger Company, Costco, things like that, uh, companies like that, they operate – Domestically, over 31,000 stores, which represents about 2.5, just under 2.5 billion square feet of retail space. That doesn't include uh, corporate offices or distribution centers or manufacturing of any kind. That's an incredible amount of retail space. Now, probably in 2009, that number will come down. But uh, one of the things to really look at is the amount of energy they consume per square foot. So if they are, if they have and operate about 2.5 billion square feet of space. The national average for commercial buildings is about 13.4 kilowatt hours per square foot. So on an annual basis, each square foot of a retail space or of a commercial building uses 13.4 kilowatt hours. The average retail building is considerably higher than that 13.4. The worst offenders are actually food sales, our grocery stores. They consume uh, four times as much energy per square foot at about 53 kilowatt hours. Uh, because of the refrigeration, I'm sure, in part. And primar- primarily because of the refrigeration, yeah. Um, so like if we were to look where at I live, those, for instance, it's uh, open 24 hours. Right, right, absolutely. Um, and, and some of the biggest um, uh, consumption comes from the heating and cooling of the air, um, conditioning of the air, uh, the uh, uh, refrigeration systems and the lighting uh, are the biggest ones in, in retail buildings. But if you take a look at those top 10 retailers and you did a conservative estimate using that 13.4 kilowatt hours per square foot, and we know that you know, retailers like uh, Costco and Walmart and uh, Kroger are have a heavy food component, so we know that that number is probably actually higher. But if you multiply that 13.4 kilowatt hours per square foot, you end up with 32 billion kilowatt hours, which is about 32 million megawatt hours, the entire state of Nevada in a year with Laughlin, Reno, Vegas running 24 hours a day, doesn't consume as much energy as just the top 10 retailers. Well, so talking about food stores, you um, you know say that it's uh, really the demand side of the electricity equation that we need to look at first. 
are we tackling the low-hanging fruit? Are we making a dent there, or um, have we already done that? Uh, there are actually quite a few uh, retailers, uh, food retailers in the country who are, who are really doing um, some aggressive things. Uh, uh, food Lion in the southeast, uh, Super Value, who just recently purchased um, Albertsons, um, a pretty uh, considerable size chain. They're all working on programs to reduce their electricity consumption. One of the most aggressive, however, is Walmart, which is a really good sign. The biggest retailer in the world and one of the biggest companies in the world is really working hard to reduce their energy uh, consumption, which I think will, what will end up happening there, too, is that all of the other retailers will, will follow their lead. Programs that they initiate, um, strategies that they work on will eventually trickle down to all of the retailers, and I think that's a really good good uh, sign that things are moving in the right direction for retail. Now, you say that um, people assume that this is going to cost more to, um, you know, go to a greener, you know, system. Um, you say it doesn't have to cost a penny more. I don't think so. There, well, there are there are certainly elements of green design which will will cost more. And if you do a one-to-one comparison on on many things, they absolutely do. Um, So, for example, if we were looking at building materials, as an example, and we were looking at a particular type of tile or a particular type of wood, and we wanted to replace one that is um, bad for the environment with one that is good for the environment, and you did a direct one-to-one comparison, then yes, green materials and green systems are more expensive. But I think that's the wrong way to look at it. Hang on, Kevin, hold that thought. We've got to take a spot break. That's our music there. We'll come back and continue our conversation with Kevin O'Donnell. We'll also uh, bring Lance Williams into the discussion, continuing our talk about green buildings, what to do to make them better. Right after this, you're listening to On the Green Front with your host, Betsy Rosenberg. Lance Williams is one of those on the green front lines. He is a green building expert. Specifically, he is the executive director of the U.S. Green Building Council in the Los Angeles area. A few buildings down uh, in Southern California. Lance, welcome to the green front. Thank you very much, Betsy. Glad to be here. Well, Kevin and I were just sort of getting into it when we had to go to the spot break. I could do not only an entire hour on green buildings, but probably a multi-hour show. I think we're going to have to grow maybe daily. But uh, for now, we were just when we went to the break talking about, you know, it not, doesn't have to cost more, although it can, uh, and, and really how to put planet power people and profit first. And your specialty is really emphasizing the uh, impact on people, on humans, uh, cultural, health-wise, and I'm sure productivity as well, because I've read some, I've read some pretty, um, pretty astounding or impressive data on how being in a building that lets fresh air in and has a lot of natural lighting and doesn't have a lot of adhesives and chemical smells can really make a difference in worker output. Absolutely. Um, I'm interested in that because my own orientation, I'm trained as a cultural anthropologist, and so my interest in working on the building side, when you talk about the triple bottom line, people, planet, profits, is that so often uh, when we are building structures, uh, we, uh, let's say, put the people's people's interests uh in in more of a, a a third place role in that triple bottom line and i think it's very very important that we emphasize more and more as time goes on um, obviously the importance of 
the fact that buildings, there's no building that I know, no structure that's been erected that wasn't for the, if you will, aggrandizement of people, whether it's something that you gaze at or something that you live in. And we spend over 90% of our time in buildings. So it's very, very important to be very, very focused on human health, the kind of safety issues, uh, family concerns, uh, what our children uh, must uh, really um, be concerned about, and certainly uh, sustainability is an effort that is oriented to making sure that future generations um, have a world to live in that is sustainable. Now, you know, it, it seems like green, the green building movement is almost like going back to the past, or as the expression goes back to the future, to simpler times before we had, as I mentioned, you know, all these um, you know, airtight buildings and before we had a lot of chemicals that went into the building process and a lot of the materials that are used. Is that, in fact, what it is? Well, personally, I agree with you because um, one of the things that um, sustainable buildings emphasize is common sense solutions. For example, if you orient a building a certain way, you take maximum, take advantage of maximum use. Excuse me, of daylighting, and therefore you don't have to turn the lights on as much. And the implications are that you save money on your electricity bills. Excuse me. Or if you if you build vertically, you don't have as broad a building footprint, and so you have a higher density. And the trade-off is that there's the ability to really have more open space available. Um, if you uh, emphasize water quality, that is such where uh, you know that you can recycle some of the water, um, then you can save on the potable water. And in a place like Southern California. Certainly the drought conditions that exist here are very, very critical. And uh, there's the analogy uh, between Southern California and other places in the world. Um, uh, two weeks ago, I was out of the country. Actually, I was uh, with my family uh, in Africa. And uh, I was looking at CNN International, and uh, I thought of my friends with the Australian Green Building Council who have uh, issues related to drought. And with that fire that they had that killed over 100 people, um, that obviously brought up a lot of fears because certainly uh, in a in an area with uh, a, a lot of, uh, shall we say, um, um, materials or resources uh, that would be conducive to, uh, you know, water security, then um, it, it perhaps would not have been as calamitous uh, an experience. But in a condition of drought, we have some heavy, heavy concerns. Uh, we had the Catalina f- uh, fire a couple of years ago that uh you know, said a lot about our concerns about water. We've got places like Big Bear, Lake Arrowhead, other places where, um, you know, water and access uh, are, are major, major concerns, especially at, at specific times of the year. I want to, we'll get back to Kevin in a minute, but I want to take advantage of the fact that you are a lead specialist. I'm sure Kevin knows plenty about that, too. Uh, tell our listeners what LEED stands for and, and how much is that penetrating mainstream building? Well, LEED stands for Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design, and it is a process that over time 
<coughs> excuse me, first of all, the LEED rating system uh, was created and operated by the U.S. Green Building Council, which is a non-government organization or non-profit organization based in Washington, D.C., with chapters all over the country, including in Los Angeles, where I'm the executive director. And LEED was created conceptually in 1999, uh, 1998, excuse me. So it's, it's, it's a scat. Uh, a little more than 10 years old, and in that time, we have seen a tremendous interest within the building industry and allied industries for the promotion of LEED because it's a, a very, very important and flexible and common sense-based strategy by which you uh, derive buildings that are healthy and sustainable and really promote um, a longer life cycle and using materials that are conducive to our health rather than uh, uh, deconstructive, if you will, of our health. Now, there's different levels of LEED uh, classification. Yes, there it is a rating system in which uh, there are four primary categories. The lowest level is LEED certified. The next level up is LEED silver. The next level up is LEED gold. And the platinum standard literally is LEED platinum. And a platinum, platinum LEED building is a building that is uh, very, very uh, self-sustaining. It is, some, it is a building that perhaps has... Uh, self-contained water system in which, for example, uh, perhaps 80% of the water used in that building uh, is uh, recycled uh, through the system. There may be a water collector on the roof, for example, and a purification system somewhere on the premises. Um, it, is, it is a building that uh, in which uh, as much as 90 to 95% of the materials used were recycled or otherwise uh, the materials were diverted from the waste stream. And so there are a lot of, as I say, common sense concerns. Typically the building is accessible to uh, public transportation or alternative means of transportation. Perhaps uh, on the facility uh, there's the ability to allow people to um, park their bicycles. Uh, there are alternative fueling stations on, on many properties. Um, the uh, orientation of the building, as I said before, takes maximum use of daylighting. So there's some very, very interesting characteristics of uh, buildings that are built to these sustainable standards. And all over the world, um, there is the move afoot that we must practice uh, sustainable building uh, efforts in order to, um, to really make a difference. We need to reduce our eco footprint, in fact. want to, uh, before we get to break, uh, just get back to Kevin with one more question. Kevin, you talk about closed-loop systems in buildings. What does that mean exactly? The short version would be that there is no such thing as waste. Um, one process's waste is fuel for another process. So essentially, everything is a closed loop. There is uh, nothing coming out of the system that becomes waste for the environment to have to deal with. Um, one of the great proponents of this kind of thinking is William McDonough with the book that he uh, wrote a couple of years ago, Cradle to Cradle, uh, which is, is an absolutely fabulous book, um, where he goes to great length about essentially closed-loop systems and how they work. Now, we're just about out of time, guys. We're going to have to have you back because I wanted to talk a little bit about the um, higher costs involved with LEED certification. I'm on the building 
committee of our synagogue renovation project, and we are incorporating a lot of green aspects, and I've been, you know, championing, let's, let's make it LEED certified. And they said, oh, that will just cost a lot of extra money. Short answer, one of you, uh, necessarily true or not, and we will, on another occasion, delve more deeply into that. Well, let me jump into that. Uh, this, the short answer is simply, when you start at the conceptual stage and not wait till you're about to drop concrete in the ground, the cost differential is fairly minimum. Okay, when you're the the research shows, you know the the actual studies show that there's essentially for elite platinum building no more than a ten percent premium, uh, and in some cases it's as low as five percent. When you're looking at certified, it's pretty much a wash. When you're looking at gold, it's about two percent. When you're looking at uh, lead silver, it's about two percent. So again, when you when you bring in the proper elements, the chemistry of the team, and you you see it from a sustainable design perspective, uh, you minimize those uh, additional costs. Thanks, Lance. Thanks, Kevin O'Donnell and Lance. Yeah. We've got to go to break. See you uh, right after uh, these messages back on the green front. Thank you, Betsy. Thank you.